Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do uh, come to you this morning with that prayer that our eyes could be turned upon Jesus. Father, that we would be able to once again see more clearly and, and truly feel deep within our own hearts, God, just the amazing sacrifice and gift of grace that we have in Christ. Father, we pray that whether that's through song and through singing, whether that's through prayer, Father, opening up your holy word, God, that it would allow us to fix our eyes on you. Father, that we could see you once more as the author and perfecter of our faith and truly trust in you and run after you, Father, with the same endurance that Christ ran on our behalf through this life, living a life that was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Father, with that death, your grace abounds and it overflows. And so may we rest and celebrate joyfully in that grace and in that amazing provision that only comes through Christ. Father, be with us now in spirit and in truth, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone this morning, and I hope that that song really does encourage you and inspire you this morning to turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's a beautiful song, a well-known song, but one that really does provide a meaningful challenge and invitation, right? It, it, it really is important for us to think about what does it mean to turn your eyes upon Jesus? Have you ever really given that thoughtful consideration in terms of what that looks like and, and how to do that in a very practical way. Uh, you think about your day beyond Sunday morning, whether that's later today or Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, any, any day in between those. What does it look like to turn your eyes upon Jesus? What do you do to make that effort? What are the things, the rhythms, the traditions that you put in your life, the habits that you cling to to help you really turn your eyes upon Jesus on a daily basis? I think it's an important question. Uh, for any of us to ask ourselves, but not just to ask it individually, but also to ask it collectively and corporately. What does it mean for us as a church to turn our eyes upon Jesus? And how do we do that? What are the rhythms and the traditions and the habits that we foster here to keep our eyes focused on Christ as a body of faith and a community of faith? And those are some of the things that I want us to talk through here at the beginning of today's message. T today's message, when it comes to the text, is actually a little bit shorter um, even though we're reading more verses, the, the message will be a little bit shorter, but we actually have more things that I want to update you on in terms of things that we want to do as a church uh, as we start heading into the start of a new school year here before too long to think about what are the different things that we do as a church to help us fix our eyes on Jesus. And I want to provide a few updates to that end. And actually the, the sort of updates that I want to give you in terms of what we're going to be trying to do starting with this next school year uh, is more than I can cover just in today's message. Uh, so I'm going to take a good chunk of the first part of today's message to talk a little bit about it, uh, but then I'm going to also, for the rest of the month of July, every Sunday uh, that I'm here, I'm going to be able to give you some additional updates to try to walk you through a little bit of what we're looking forward to uh, when the new school year begins. And it all kind of speaks to our philosophy of how do we work together to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And so the update today, when we talk about that, really is, is my intention is to give you a little bit of context to this conversation and uh, some details in terms of timing. And then we'll kind of elaborate on that a little bit further as we move further into this month. Uh, but really where I want to begin is kind of where we are collectively as a whole 
uh, coming out of this pandemic, right? Uh, and I don't know that we can say the pandemic is over. Obviously, it's, it's changing. Um, but let me kind of explain to you part of why we sense that shift uh, at this point in, in the journey that society has been going through in response to this pandemic. I think it's very clear for all of us that we would say over the last two years, two plus years, uh, the pandemic has brought a tremendous amount of change. True? Right? I mean, in, in every arena of life, whether that was uh, your work, whether that was your relationships, your school, your church, uh, the last several years have been filled with constant change. And part of the reason for that change was because everything was filled with a certain level of uncertainty, right? We didn't know how things were going to progress. And, and when you start thinking about uh, facilitating and leading a church in that sort of environment, we also had to kind of navigate those last few years with that same level of uncertainty because we didn't know where protocol is going to change, where new variants going to emerge. And there was a high level of unpredictability in terms of what church engagement would look like from your end, right? Who would feel comfortable coming to this event? Who would not feel comfortable? How long will this last? And so, so much of what we've done over the last several years as a church has been living in that state of uncertainty and that unpredictability, which means we've kind of gone from season to season uh, with, with plans that we kind of say, well, we'll try this for now, and a lot of interim approaches to ministry. And, and in the course of those two years, some things have really stuck that we've really liked, and others we've tried and continue to evaluate as things have, have kind of progressed through the course of this pandemic. Well, now that we're, we're kind of turning a corner where we would say it's not necessarily that the pandemic is over, but there's, there's less uncertainty. Things are more predictable. There, there's a greater degree of normalcy that we can somewhat bank on at this point that that allows us to go into the fall semester and really uh, to the start of a new school year with a different approach and a different philosophy to things that we want to do collectively as a church, right? And, and so when you think about all that change that we've experienced over the last couple of years, we, we want to try to break free from that and create a little bit more stability. Now, to add to that emphasis, you could also argue for our church that there's been additional change because you have a new pastor, Right Within the last six years, it'll be six years for me this fall, anytime you bring in a new pastor, there's change, right? There, there's new culture, there's new terminology, there's new ministries that are launched. And so if you've been a part of this church family for the last six years, it's almost all been filled with change. And even if your time here has been more recent, just in the last couple years, it's been filled with change, right? And, and so what we want to do as we move into this next school year is to establish rhythm, establish tradition that can be uh, relied upon, that you can depend upon. We all know that rhythm and tradition is good, right? It's good in a lot of arenas. It's good in your home. It's good in your schools. It's good in relationships. It's good for your church. And so we really want to do that. And so as we start moving into this next school year, what I want you to know is that while, while we have uh, learned a lot through this pandemic and we have this opportunity to kind of reconnect in different ways, that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going exactly back to the way they were prior to COVID, right? It's not like everything's going back to the way that it used to be. Because the other thing that we saw over the last two years is an opportunity to evaluate and, and to uh, kind of assess what we were doing, how we were doing it, and things that we might want to modify and change. And then, like I just mentioned, some things that we've done in the last couple of years we've really liked and we, we don't want to let go of. And so while it's not necessarily going exactly back to the way that it was, what I am trying to communicate to you this morning is that when we start this next school year, we're kind of shedding that mentality of, well, let's see how this works for a season. 
right? This is an interim plan to weather all this change. What we're doing is what we're rolling out and gonna be implementing is with the mindset of we wanna establish rhythm. We wanna establish tradition. We're doing this for the long haul. Granted, we always will evaluate, right? We'll always leave room to, to modify and tweak things, but, but our mindset going into the, to the fall semester, the beginning of the new school year, is we, we wanna do this with uh, that intent to establish those rhythms and traditions that are healthy for the church, okay? So the way this conversation has unfolded internally, especially amongst the staff, is we got together in January and February, and we started talking about strengths and weaknesses of our church and, and things that we wanted to prove upon things that we wanted to, to grow in, uh, and at the same time, we talked about how we could possibly address some of those, those growth areas by leaning into our strengths and kind of relying on some of the things that we're naturally good at to address some of the things that we want to improve upon. So, for example, we, we talked about really trying to improve the way that we can help people get assimilated and integrated into the life of this church. That was something we really wanted to improve. We, we wanted to help people create a broader network of community, especially coming out of a pandemic where there was all this isolation and it was difficult to foster community. And so when we started talking about things like that, we're also talking about things that we naturally like about our church. We like the vision of the church. We like the way that we're trying to engage the community. We like that we're intergenerational. So how do we use these things to address some of these growth areas, right? And so that was a conversation and has been a conversation for the last several months and there's a lot of different things we're seeking to do to address that. But today, I want to tell you how that's going to start impacting our approach to Sunday morning, specifically at that 9.30 hour, okay? Uh, the 9.30 hour in particular before we all gather here together in corporate worship. And that's, that's going to be the update that I focus in on over the next several Sundays to kind of give you some familiarity and understanding of what we're going to do starting with the beginning of a new school year here in the middle of August, okay? Now, with that being said, I want you to know that, that our philosophy with all this is, is not specific to any one age. This is across the board, but what we really wanna do uh, later this morning is kinda narrow in into what this is gonna look like, especially for adults. And so, when we, when we started talking about that 9.30 hour, uh, one of the things we did, or that we talked about, is we wanted to address everything that I just mentioned, right? We wanted it to be an opportunity to help people get integrated into the life of the church. We wanted it to help create opportunities for building broader networks of community, studying scripture. We wanted to do all these different things. And so we're going to go through a little bit of a rebranding for our Sunday morning. Because previously we called it uh, Sunday Connect. And we felt like the word connect was a little limiting to, to really capture all that we hope is achieved during that 930 hour. Uh, we've most recently been referring to it as Sunday morning Bible study, and we will always gather together to study the Bible. That is absolutely fundamental to everything we do during that hour, so that's still a part of it, but, but we also wanted to convey that there's more than just coming together and studying Scripture. We wanted to convey a little bit about how we're going to do that. And so here's the rebranding, and I know this rebranding takes time, and so let me give some explanation to it, but we're going to start referring to that 930 hours UBC Enriched. And, and the reason we did that is because the definition for the word enriched means to add value or significance to something. And so here's the idea, right? We want your time and your experience here in the life of this church to be enriched, right? And so you can come at 1030. 
And, and this can be your main touch point to be involved in the life of this church. You can gather every week and worship with us in this setting. But our answer to you is that if you want to enrich your life here, if you want your experience to being a part of this faith community to be enriched, if you want added value and significance, there are more things that you can engage in prior to that 1030 worship service. That's what UBC Enriched means. And so your natural question is, sounds great. How are you going to enrich that? What does that look like? Well, that's where we kind of come up with this little tagline to give a little bit greater clarity to what we're talking about during that hour. That that's going to be a time where we meet together to grow in scripture, community, and vision. Okay? And so a lot of similarities to some of the things that we've done in the past, but a slightly different structure than what we've done in the past. But all of it is, is really intended to enrich your experience and your time here as, as a part of this church family, okay? And so let me walk you through a little bit about what that is going to look like. Again, the philosophy of this is true for all ages, right? So if you're a parent and you're thinking about what does it mean for your children to have a more enriched experience as a, being a part of this church, for them to grow in their understanding of scripture, for them to grow in building friendships and community and understanding what it means to participate in the vision of this church, coming at 9.30 is a, a very critical way to do that, right? That's true for youth, it's true for adults. So philosophically, it's true for all of us. But what I'm about to dive into in, ser in terms of some of the details this morning is really more specific to the adults, right? And so there will be some overlap, but a lot of that we're talking about what does it look like for us uh, uh, at the more uh, adult level, okay? And so when we talk about what, we're talk uh, what we hope to provide at that 9.30 hour with UBC Enriched is really, again, an opportunity for us to to gather together, to build those sorts of uh, growing in that youth, uh, community through scripture, through community, and through vision. And so what we want to do is when you gather together on the Sunday morning, we're going to have uh, a little bit of an interesting start to the year. Let me talk to you about dates and timing. August 14th is the start of the school year. Well, August 14th is Sunday, so the 15th is technically the start of the school year. 14th is Promotion Sunday. You heard it referenced earlier in our announcements. That's promo weekend for the youth. Uh, and so August 14th is Promotion Sunday here. That's where you see a lot of the kids move into their next grade. For the adults, for us, what we're going to do, that is going to be the start of our D group year. That is our D group launch date. Uh, discipleship groups are integral to our philosophy of discipleship in this church. We talk all the time about it being an annual commitment. And so that annual commitment starts on August 14th. And so we're going to have this awesome launch event on the 14th after church. We're going to have food. We're going to have an opportunity to hang out, opportunity for you to hear more about uh, different D groups that are available, shared information about what sort of D groups you're looking for, help people get connected to those discipleship groups. But that's going to be a main point of emphasis on the 14th. That morning during the 930 hour, kids will have their normal things, youth will have their normal things, but adults will be getting ready for that launch event uh, later after the church service that day. So then you go to August 21st. August 21st at 9.30, we're all gonna gather together and we're gonna have a service project together, right? Working alongside one another that's really gonna coincide with that theme of going back to school. You saw that we're raising supplies for the schools. We work very closely with uh, Seminary Hills Park Elementary. So we might gather together and write thank you notes for them, notes of encouragement, do uh, some prayer for them, pray over those supplies. We'll, we'll give you the details as that gets closer, but we're gonna serve alongside one another on the morning of the 21st at 9.30, which means on the 28th is where you really start to fall into a normal rhythm for that Sunday morning 9.30 hour, okay? And, and what we're gonna do is, what I want you to think of is we're gonna have these sessions of eight weeks 
increments, right? Each session is eight weeks long, and we're going to have those sessions throughout the year, okay? So there's going to be that rhythm of every eight weeks that we're going to have to kind of build our year around. And so session one will start on August 28th, okay? And what we're going to see is on that first week, on August 28th, uh, that first session, is we're going to have three classes every session. And those classes are going to be driven by the vision of this church. Whenever you hear me talk about the vision of the church, I'm talking about discipleship, healing, and justice, right? We say it all the time. We're disciples who make disciples. We're a, a place for healing. We're a people who love justice. And so that's where you really get integrated into the life of this church and begin to really practice a lot of these things that we want to pursue. And so we're going to have three classes that are built upon the categories of that vision. But those categories are broad enough that the content and the subject of each class will vary from session to session, right? So for example, you show up session one, there'll be three different classes, one related to discipleship, one related to healing, and one related to justice. But the class on discipleship could cover any number of topics, right, depending on the teacher for that session. They may decide under discipleship, we're going to talk about this session, what does it mean to make disciples? The next session, uh, eight weeks later, could be, well, we're going to talk about Prayer and the importance of prayer in discipleship. And then after that, later in the year, it could be, well, we're going to talk about evangelism, the importance of evangelism, right? So the subjects will change, but they'll stay under the category of that vision, discipleship, healing, and justice. You get to healing. It could be subjects like, how do I see from Scripture that God actually loves me, right? What does it mean to find repentance and reconciliation in relationships, right? All these different subjects that could relate to healing. Justice. What, what do we mean for biblical justice? What about mission, right? All these different subjects throughout the year that relate to those categories to help reiterate the vision of our church. Used to be that our Sunday morning classes were divided up by uh, age and life stage. Moving forward, we really want them to be intergenerational. We want to create an opportunity for people to build a broad network of relationships. And so when you go through a session Right, You choose it based on that category, based on that subject, and you'll have an opportunity throughout the year to, to choose different uh, groups or different subjects that really appeal to you and meet more in different people. Okay, And so you'll come to, the, to that class or you'll come to that group, and for the first session, the first six weeks, you'll walk through some of that content. Week seven, we're going uh, to probably bring in a guest speaker. Right? Each class may bring in a guest speaker that kind of uh, complements the subject. We may have one guest speaker that all classes come to. Could be that we bring somebody outside from uh, Seminary Hills Park to help us understand how do we engage with that school or Buckner or, or whatever it can be. But week seven, we'll bring in an outside speaker either to the class or to all classes so that we can continue to complement the things that are being discussed. And then week eight, my favorite part, we're all going to have breakfast together. Can I get an amen? Right? Because who doesn't like to eat food together? But if you think to Easter, if you were here with us on Easter Sunday, we all gathered together in Harris Hall. I mean, we had this great breakfast celebration. We want to do that on a more regular basis. Now, we're not going to ask the deacons to cook for us every eight weeks. So it'll be to a different scale, right? It'll be to a different scale. But the idea of gathering together with a regular rhythm, just in fellowship and community every eight weeks, to break bread together before we come in and worship together. And on that eighth week, you'll get a preview of what's happening in the next session, right? The next set of topics, the next set of teachers, okay? And that's going to establish another rhythm that allows us to gather together, study God's word, to be able to build community and better understand this vision, 
right? Now, there are a lot of additional details that I'm going to unpack for you over the next several weeks. Questions like, well, why is this different than discipleship groups? What is the Bible study really gonna look like? A lot of additional questions that I know you have that I'm going to make sure that we unpack as we move forward into the start of the new school year. But today, I wanted you to at least hear a little bit of the context of what's driving it and understand a little bit of the timing so that you can anticipate uh, an exciting beginning to the start of the new school year. And, and our hope with all of this is, again, to go back to the title there, that this helps enrich our time here as a part of this faith community, right? That it helps add value and significance to what it means to be part of the life of this church. And, and that will really hopefully help you find that your time here being engaged in the life of this church exceeds expectations, right? Like, like that it's not just a place that you come to once a week. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's more than that. And it accomplishes more in your life and you see in more enriching and incredible ways that God moves through you and through the life of this church. Going back to our prayer that we see God's power unleashed, not just personally, but in our church. And so we're incredibly excited about it. We look forward to it because we really want it to help exceed those expectations and enrich us accordingly. And that's how I'm gonna transition us to the text, right? That idea of what it means to encounter something that exceeds expectations and how life-giving that can be, correct? Because that's a big part of what we're gonna see in the passage in Romans 5 today. Because we've all been a part of situations where expectations weren't met and how deflating that can feel, correct? Right, like you buy the car and it doesn't end up being as reliable. You go on a vacation, it wasn't nearly as good as the pictures made it seem. You, you, you go to a movie and it's not nearly as entertaining as people made that sound like it was gonna be, right? Those moments where expectations are not met are very deflating. Contrastingly, on the other side, when expectations are exceeded, man, that leads to joy, doesn't it? Right? When the car's better than you thought, the vacation was better than you imagined, the movie was so much better than what people described. Like, we love those moments. I'll give you an example. Uh, turned 40 this past March, and Jennifer and I decided to do a little bit of a staycation here in Fort Worth. Had my mom come in and, and watch the kids, and so we, we found a nice hotel in Fort Worth, had a nice night out and everything like that. And when we checked into the hotel, we walk in, tell them our name of the reservations. The lady does a little thing at the kiosk, whatever she's doing. I don't know what she's typing at the time. And as she's typing, all of a sudden she looks at me. She goes, well, just wanted to let you know we were going to give you a complimentary upgrade. Tonight you're going to get to stay in one of our executive suites. And we were like, what? I mean, we didn't tell her it was my birthday. We didn't tell her anything about it. Completely unexpected. We were like, sweet, right? No pun intended. But we were like super excited. And so we go into this room and it's got this huge, luxurious bathroom, this amazing kitchen, this open area, and we were just beside ourselves, right? We were joyful. Nobody has their expectations exceeded and is like deflated, right? Nobody's like, well, this room's too big, you know? I mean, like, you, you can't help but be joyful when something exceeds your expectations, and that's the gospel, right? Like, that's the gospel, is understanding that God did so much more than we could have ever imagined in Jesus Christ, right? If there was a fundamental message today, and the reason why it can be shorter is because Paul really makes a very simple point a thousand different ways in today's text, is the simple point is this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It exceeded our expectations. 
That's what we're going to look at today. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll walk through it together. We've talked uh, the last week about the way that these elements of devotion, discernment, and delight are evident throughout these first few chapters of Romans, right? Devotion and discernment in particular in those first four chapters. And then last week we said, now that we're at chapter 5, Paul really emphasizes this response of delight. These are the characteristics of a renewed life. And the reason we emphasize this this uh, focus on delight and joy in chapter 5 is because of that word in the NIV that is translated as boasting, but in many other uh, translations is often translated as rejoicing, right? The word can actually be translated either way. And so when you look in the opening few verses of chapter 5, you see Paul say three different times, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, rejoice in our sufferings, rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. And so the overall tone for chapter 5 is rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And we talked about that last week and how important that is and what it means to create a lifestyle that allows joy to flourish. Well, today, as we move and progress through the rest of this chapter, Paul really kind of reminds us of the essence of the gospel and in so doing gives us a picture of the source of such delight, the source of such joy. Okay, and so we're going to read through it. Through, uh, verses 12 through 21 in chapter 5, and then we'll, we'll talk about it briefly. Follow along with me, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. And nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in a justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, it's a lot of verses and you're like, no way this is going to be shorter. What are you talking about? But the reason I can say that is because the reality is is that Paul is really just making one primary point, right? But what's happened and the reason it reads almost like in a way that gives you tired head is because Paul is a guy that goes on tangents, right? And, And what he's done in verses 12 through 21 is gone on a couple of different tangents to make one primary point. Like you... You all know those sorts of conversations where somebody goes on a tangent, right? You ever been in those conversations? You ask them a question and they start answering. And before you know it, they're tackling like three different things, chasing three different rabbits, going three different bunny trails. And you're sitting there wondering, are they ever going to get back to what I actually asked? Like, 
Like you ever find yourself asking yourself that in a conversation? And then at times they actually make their way back and I'm like, oh, that was pretty impressive. They remembered what we were talking about. But most of the times people are like, now what was I saying? Right? And they get lost. And, and so I don't really fault people for that. I feel like I'm that way a lot of times in conversation. I can easily go on tangents pretty easily, right? Because it's hard to keep track in a conversation. Speaking of keeping track, you heard about that new facial recognition technology that people can use, which makes me wonder how that's going to work with uh, plastic surgery. Speaking of surgery, did you know that um, you can actually practice surgery through the metaverse now, through video games? Speaking of video games, my son loves video games. Now, he's a great conversationalist. He can keep on track, right? You see my point. This is what Paul just did. Okay, he went on all these different tangents, and that's why it can be really difficult to understand 12 through 21, right? He says one thing that makes him think of another thing that makes him think of another thing. And so let me just kind of walk you through the, the structure of verses 12 through 21, explain a few of these tangents, and then we'll kind of narrow it back down to what we really want to extract from it. So verse 12, he gives you his opening thought that he doesn't even complete, right? Like you can see at the end of the verse, there's a hyphen, because he doesn't even finish his thought, his opening thought is sin entering into the world. And as soon as he introduces that, he realizes, well, I need to explain what I mean by sin and how it entered the world. So then he starts talking about the difference between Adam and Moses, essentially, right? That it, really, that this sin that I'm talking about is not related to having the law. This is a very important point. His explanation is, is that we're not talking about just the sin that comes from disobedience to the law because the law didn't show up until Moses. But sin and death reigned from Adam to Moses. Sin and death was already here before we had the law. So Paul's point at this stage is this is not a Jewish or Gentile problem. This is a human problem, right? Sin and death have always reigned. And so that's where he begins to explain his first tangent. And as he begins to explain that first tangent, explaining that all of that happened because of Adam and his act of rebellion, that he did break a command, it then makes him think about the gift versus the trespass. And so verses 15 and seven, through 17, he's talking about the gift, right? And how much greater the gift is rather than the trespass. So it takes him all the way to verse 18 before he actually gets back to his opening thought in verse 12. So when he gets to verse 18 and 19, that's where you see kind of a summary of his main point. That essentially, sin and death entered the world through an act of disobedience through Adam and brought condemnation to all. But through Jesus, in his one act of righteousness, justification is brought to all. And that's really what he's trying to explain in this whole text, right? And, and he's breaking it down through two different epochs of human history, the, the epoch of Adam that was ruled by sin and death, and then the epoch of Jesus that's ruled by grace and righteousness, which leads to this summary uh, explanation verses 20 and 21 where he says where sin increased grace increased all the more and that's why we can boast that's why we can be joyful right so that's the sentence structure and that's why when you read it it can be confusing and there are a lot of great little nuances to all of it if we did work through it systematically but because it's chasing so many different tangents, my thought is it's not really beneficial for us to work through it verse by verse, but really just to focus in on kind of the main thought that Paul is really trying to argue here in this text. And, and so in order for us to really get our minds wrapped around it, let's consider again what Paul is really trying to convey to us in terms of sin, entering the world through Adam. 
Right? He says essentially that sin comes through the act of disobedience that, that Adam was responsible for. Sin and death have reigned. But this is a sin and a death that is different from a disobedience to the law. Right? Now that's a really interesting statement. And I think it, it merits us to pause and consider what Adam or what Paul means then by sin. Right? Because this is more than just the breaking of rules. This is more than just not following certain commands. This is something that is inherent to the human race. And Paul is making an argument that the reason we can see that it is inherent to the human race is because it ushered in the reign of death, right? That, that what we all know is inevitable for each and every one of us is death, right? Death reigns, ultimately, Right? And so the sin that we're talking about here is a sin that is a result of separation from God. Right? More than it is a, a specific disobedience to a list of commands, this is about being separated from God. And it all stems from Adam's direct disobedience to his command. But think back to that disobedience right? that, that God creates to be in relationship. And you think about the character of God, the nature of God. God is love. God is life. And what Adam says is, I don't want to be in that relationship. I want to be like God, right? And so I want to live independently from this relationship, not under it. And when he makes that decision, the ramifications of that choice is to live independent from God. And what God ultimately says is, if you want to live separate from me, you're going to discover just how ungodlike you are, there is no life apart from me. And so to live apart from me is to live under the reign of death, right? And so death is an undeniable marker across the course of human history that we are separated from our creator who brings life. That's the sort of sin that separates us. So what we're talking about here is essentially the idea of original sin, right? And I don't know if you've ever really had conversations about that or considered the idea of, of original sin, but I believe we can see the evidence of original sin in a couple of different ways, not just from the text. But, but a lot of times people balk at that idea or they push back against the idea of original sin, right? Some people would maybe want to argue that we actually all show up here inherently good, and then what happens is that over the course of time, society, the world, whatever, is what corrupts us, and that's where people become bad. Right? The problem with that view is children, right? And I'm, I mean that, right? Like it, it, all the parents that amen, right? Like we all understand across every culture, across every society, that, that parents' main job is to teach their children to be good and obedient, right? Because they instinctively show up here selfish and rebellious, Right? That if you were to just leave a child to their own impulses, it would not be pretty. Right? Like, I didn't teach my child how to throw a tantrum. Right? Like, they knew that. They just showed up knowing how to do that. Right? It's not like, hey, when you're really upset and you just want to be really crazy, here's what you do. Scream, throw things, cry. Nobody had to explain that to a child. Right? So it, you, the list could go on and on. Right? The idea of original sin is, is validated logically in nature by the idea that across every society, parents have to teach their children obedience and goodness, okay? The other thing that, that we could really point to 
um, is death, right? There, there is a sense of in- inevitability in every human heart that death is the end, right? And that is not a good thing. Every society mourns the reality of death, right? Which is another reminder that this world is broken, right? That there is some form of separation, that things are not as they should be, right? So original sin, I, I think, is, is pretty evident just in nature and in, in logical observation in and of itself. And the Bible affirms it, right? So the Bible teaches that as well, right? The Bible is saying that the reason we have those things, the reason we show up that way is because of Adam's disobedience that creates the separation and we're all descendants of Adam, right? And so that's why it's here. Now, when you begin to really wrestle with that, I think the inevitable question that we often ask is, is that fair, right? Like, is it fair that we all suffer from the reign of sin and death because somebody else's act of disobedience, right? Like, that's a legitimate question. If you're in a classroom and one person is talking and one person is defiant and the teacher turns around and the whole class then gets penalized, A lot of the students are going to go, that's not fair. We weren't doing anything. Why am I being penalized for the disobedience of another? Right? Like, that's a legitimate question. And I think a lot of people may ask themselves that question when you really wrestle with this concept of original sin. Is it fair for us to suffer under the reign of sin and death because of Adam's disobedience? And and just by asking that question, I think it reveals a couple of things about the human heart. Number one, it reveals our desire for fairness. Right? The human heart is drawn towards that which is just, that which is fair, that which is right. We all long for it. And so the question that we're really asking is, if there is a God, will he be just? Will he be fair? Or will he be unjust? Will he be unfair? Right? But, but the question in and of itself reveals the human heart's desire for justice. It also reveals the human heart's desire for life, right? It it speaks to the idea that we don't want to be under the reign of sin and death. And that tells us that we were actually not created for death, but for life, right? We, We want something else. We were made for something more. Is it going to be something that we can actually find and achieve? And so just by asking the question, it reveals a tremendous amount about the human heart's desire for both justice and life. The problem is that sometimes a lot of us will arrive at this place of wrestling with original sin or original brokenness, and that's as far as we take it. We'll ask the question whether or not this is fair, and then we leave the play at intermission. It's like we watch the first act, this this tragedy of the story of Adam and all the problems that it creates, and all the questions that it, that it creates for us to ask, and then we just leave. But what the scriptures command us, and what Paul is revealing here, is there's a second act that answers your question. Act two, the hero of the story is not Adam, it's Jesus. Right? And tremendous things take place under Christ. And that's what Paul begins to explain in the details of Romans 5. In fact, if we were going to try to simplify the message for Romans 5, you could borrow from 1 Corinthians 15.22, right? 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For in Adam we all die, but in Christ we all are made alive. That's a beautiful declaration. 
And that's really what Paul begins to unpack when you get to that, that summary there in verses 18 and 19, right? That essentially Paul, uh, God's answer for the human tragedy is to send Jesus. That in the same way that we were all condemned because of the disobedient act of one person, right, that, that, that led to all this condemnation, we will now all be justified by the one righteous act of another person. So now you can kind of flip the analogy on its head, right? What about the one student that does something really great, that goes above and beyond, does everything the teacher asks and goes out of their way to demonstrate that obedience, and then the teacher turns around and rewards the entire class because of the act of another student, right? This is essentially what the gospel does. And so if you want to sit there and say, is it fair for God to, to condemn me for the act of rebellion of another person, we can see that God actually counters that by bringing justification by the obedience of one righteous act, and so we get more than we deserve in that regard. It absolutely is fair. It's even more than we could imagine in terms of it being fair. Now, a couple of qualifying statements about this before we get to kind of the main point that I want us to end with is that one of the things I want to make sure we don't lose sight of is that when, when you read a text like this, it could be possible for you to try to take it out of context and assume that since Jesus died, that all will get to then experience life. And you could extract this concept and almost approach it through the lens of universalism. Or like, well, because Jesus died, everyone gets to go to heaven, right? All are justified. But if you take that interpretation of this text, you're taking it out of context, right? You gotta keep it in the book of Romans because Paul has explained time and time again how do the righteous live? By faith, right? That there is still a faith that has to be required of the repentant heart to come forward and say, I receive this gift of obedience, right? But we see a tremendous contrast between these two figures. And in so, we find a very different pattern of how we should live that life of faith, right? For Adam, he wanted to be like God, right? He wanted to seize that control and that power. And that's what led to a life of sin and death. Jesus is the opposite. His obedience, as described in Philippians 2, was understanding that equality with God was not something that could be grasped or seized. So he humbled himself and he took on the nature of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. And there is the pattern for our faith. There is the model for our life, right? And so it's this, this beautiful picture of how God responds to Adam's rebellion. And if we ask ourselves the question, is this fair? The answer is yes. God has done a tremendous work in Jesus to overcome the tragedy and overcome sin and death. And so what really grabs me, and this is where I want us to close for our time together this morning, what really grabs me through the course of all this discussion and this point that Paul is really making is the incredible abundance with which God responds in grace and righteousness. Right, it's the word more specifically. And as you look at Paul reflecting upon the gift that is greater than the trespass in verses 15 through 17, and then he uses the word again in verse 20, it's this idea of exceeding our expectations. It's this idea of doing so much more than we asked or imagined. Look at verses 15, 17, and 20, and look at the, these words. Verse 15, how much more did God's grace and gift overflow to the many? 
Verse 17, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And then verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Right, those words, more, abundance, right, overflow. It's the same word that means great excess. It means super abundance. And so here's what I want you to understand. Paul's, I mean, God's response to the tragedy of Adam was so much more than what we could have expected, right? To, to make it fair would be to say, okay, I'm going to no longer hold this verdict of guilt against you, right? I'm going to remove that label of guilt. I'm going to return you to a position of innocence, and now we'll see how you do. Like, that would have been fair, right? Like, I'm just going to see, I'm going to start over. We'll we'll see how you handle it now. That would have been fair. And what Paul is saying is God didn't just return us to a state of innocence. He did so much more in Jesus Christ. His grace overflows to the many. It is in an abundance of grace that we have this gospel. It is so much more than you could ask or imagine. He didn't just restore you to some level of of innocence. He gives you the promise of everlasting life. He gives you the promise to reign in righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? How much more has he done for you? That's the gospel. And that's his point. He's done so much more. And yet, too many times in life, you and I can lose sight of that. We should be living lives with the perspective of an overflowing abundance of grace. And too many times we live life like we have a scarcity of grace. We have the scarcity mindset. Let me explain to you what that looks like. We can become familiar with this gospel. We know the answers to offer in and, and group settings when we're at church. We can explain Jesus died for our sins. But on a day-to-day, we forget the abundance of his grace. And we'll say, I know Jesus died for me, but I don't know what to do about all these worries. I don't know if he can handle this disease. I don't know if he can help me navigate this cancer. I don't know if he can help me overcome this addiction. Right, we'll we'll say, I know Jesus died for me and there's all these great things, but I still can't figure out purpose and meaning and calling and fulfillment. I know he's done all these things, but I don't know if I can really navigate loneliness, depression, anxiety, and all these things, and we live a life it really reflects that we have a view that this grace is scarce, not abundant. And what the gospel calls us back to, and what Paul is inviting his readers to and inviting you and me to do today is to be reminded that God has done so much more and we should live a life in that abundant belief of his grace. Right? We should be bold in the way that we live. We should be bold in the way that we engage the world around us. We should be courageous in adversity and the things that we face. We should be bold in our conversations. It's not like we have some secret that we have to timidly 
convey to others lest they be offended. We have an incredible message that is worthy of being shouted from the rooftops. We should be bold in the way that we love our neighbors. We should be bold in all of these different things because, yes, church, life is hard. And it's filled with difficulty. And there will be many days and many moments where you can look around and say sin is increased. But every time we do, we should look to each other and remind one another grace has increased all the more. And that's where we find our delight in the Lord. That's where we get to be joyful and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because what God has done for us in Jesus Christ is so much more than we could have ever asked or imagined. And so let us live with that mindset of his abundant grace. Let's come together this morning and declare to one another and to our king that we need him so that we can overcome that mindset of scarcity and truly rest in his abundant provision and give thoughtful praise to a God and a creator who has given us so freely and has lavished upon us the riches of his grace. Let us encourage one another once more, church, that though sin may increase, grace has increased all the more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we're so thankful for your incredible grace that finds us in every season and in every circumstance. Father, we pray that as we come before you now in a time of response, God, and as we lift our voices to you, Father, that our hearts would truly reflect the words that we sing and we would declare our need for you and the joy that we find by discovering the hope of this gospel. The joy that we find by being reminded that no matter what burdens we may carry today, Father, your grace is more than enough. God, it is more than sufficient. It runs deep and it has been lavished upon us. And so, Father, may the the truth of that gospel message, that good news that we have in Jesus Christ, well up within us today, Father, and let us sing joyfully for all that you have done. Let us declare our need for you to one another. And let that be a mark of our dependence upon you and a commitment to celebrate the grace that you have so freely given. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you with all that we are for loving us in ways that far exceed our expectations and give us so much more than we could have ever asked or imagined. We pray all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.